What's up, Beardos? You're listening to episode 128 of The Bearded Vegans. Basically, our whole philosophy boils down to, don't be a jerk. Don't really answer your question first. I'm not answering your question. I really hope people didn't tune in to hear us talk about beards. Welcome to the show. I'm Paul. And I'm Andy. And we are the Bearded Vegans, a podcast featuring a dissection of all things vegan. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find all of our previous episodes at thebeardedvegans.com. And you can always reach us by emailing thebeardedvegans at gmail.com. In today's episode, we're going to talk about what we've been eating, answer some listener emails, do some follow-up, discuss the news, and then ask the question, should vegan activists get paid? Paul, we got a jam-packed episode today. Got a jammer. (laughs) We're jamming it all in. A lot of great stuff to talk about. Before we do that, though, just going to do our our final last call for the mailbag. So we want your listener questions, comments, and concerns. Please send those in to us to thebeardvegans at gmail.com. And we will be answering some of them on our next mailbag episode in two short episodes from now. So, like I said, we have a few listener emails that we're going to answer today. And, like, these ones are good, so you know that the mailbag is going to be real good. Yeah, we got some, some spillover is leaking, leaking into <laughs> our, our episode today. There was a puddle forming at the bottom of the mailbag, and we said we got to tidy this up a little bit, so that's what we're doing today. <laughs> yes, and also some of the ones we're answering today seem like it'd be better to answer them sooner than later. So, Andy, what have you been eating? Well, I did the old Nashville Veg Fest and then I made a trek to Wilmington, North Carolina for my next one. And in between, had some tasty eats. Actually, just about an hour ago, finished up a fantastic meal at Plant in Asheville. And I have raved about this restaurant before, but it remains one of my favorite in the country. Everything is delicious. It's it's not pretentious, but it feels like fancy. You feel just really good when you're eating there. You feel like there's so much attention to detail paid to every single component of every single meal. It feels like a ton of work goes into it. So huge shout out to Plant. I continue to be impressed by by what they're doing over there. And also just super chill staff. Everyone's just like really friendly. <laughs> and the music's great. They're playing some Charles Bradley. And I don't know. I was a happy guy there. So, so Plant was still one of my favorites. But in Knoxville, Tennessee, a friend brought me to this place called Tomato Head, which is a pizza place which has uh, vegan options on the menu. And, you know, Knoxville is not a town known for its vegan options. I I talked about the one all-vegan restaurant there, Sanctuary, uh, you know, many moons ago. And, uh, you know, I was like, okay, it's a a pizza place with vegan options. So we're just looking at a bunch of Daya just sort of farted out onto a pizza and it's not going to be that amazing. (laughs) But I was looking on the menu and they could do a vegan calzone. Oh. And uh, I was like, you know what? I'll get in that zone. Pretty mm-hmm. happy about that inclusion on the menu. So I got the calzone. Pretty sure that they use Follow Your Heart cheese, but I also got some baked tofu, some basil, and some Kalamata olives. I have to say, this calzone was really fantastic. I don't get a lot of calzones in my life just due to the lack of them being available, but this, the crust that they use, the pastry, whatever it is, 
was so good. It was it was it was buttery. I assume it was olive oil that they kind of brushed on it there. But it, it was just like the perfect consistency. They didn't overwhelm you with the fillings. Everything was just super high quality. And I would definitely go back to Tomato Head. So that's in Knoxville, Tennessee. Man, that makes me really want a calzone right now. When I was in college, there was a calzone place on campus. And I would just get calzones without cheese all the time. And it would still be delicious. But occasionally I would just bring in Daya and they would just put it in there. And oh, the, Andy, now I'm <laughs> craving calzones right now. Calzone craver. Calzone yeah, craver. You know, they, it was nice because they didn't load up the follow your heart cheese. It was enough to give you sort of the, the sensation, the mouthfeel of some cheese. But it didn't feel like you were just eating a ton of cheese, which was really nice. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah, and so also at the Nashville Veg Fest, a bunch of Beardos came out. So thank you, one, to Chris, who helped me, but also to Mary, Mandy, Shonda, Chris, different Chris, Michael, <laughs> Nicole, Shannon, Roscoe, Corey, Fran, and Britt. That's a lot of Beardos. A lot of Beardos. Yeah, thank you for coming out. So awesome to to meet everyone and, and see a couple of returning Beardos as well. Paul, what went in that beautiful mouth of yours this week? You know, nothing super exciting, I don't think. I had I had a few things that were, I think, picture-worthy, but not not flavor-worthy. Ooh, that P- pizza wasn't that good? Oh, I, I didn't want to name drop it, Andy. Did not want to name <laughs> drop it, but there you go. I, it, 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 it was okay. It was all right. It was all right. All right. But, People can go to the Instagram and, and reveal what pizza we're talking yeah. about. <laughs> but I was also at an event. I was at the Veggie Pride Parade in New York City, and I, Andy, met a couple Beardos there, too. Uh, I was actually the first Beardo that I met. I was helping sell, I was helping them with deciding what t-shirt they wanted to get, and they said, your voice sounds really familiar right now. And I was like, well, I, I like do this podcast. Maybe you know this. And this was Kathleen, who was, who was very happy, and I was very happy that <laughs> someone recognized my voice. That's, I feel like that's very bizarre and... Maybe I, it makes me self-conscious that I have a very distinctive and strange voice, but I guess it's kind of cool. But it was Paul, very you nice have to meet such Kathleen. a nice voice. My question is, were you reading something at the time? Is that why <laughs> they recognized? I was reading the price chart of how much the T-shirts cost. <laughs> so I met Kathleen. I met Cameron, who actually told me that Cameron had met you, Andy, uh, in New Jersey, I think just like three weeks before that in Morris. And then Jennifer, who I talked to a bunch and who has sent in a lot of emails. So someone, it was nice to put a name to a face finally. And also Jennifer at one point asked me, hey, do you want me to get you anything? So I gave her some money. And and when Jennifer came back, she was like, no, have this food on me. And I was like, thank you so much. I appreciate it because up until then I had like a free cookie that I had gotten and a free piece of French toast that I had gotten. So I was pretty hungry. I got some Marty's V burger, which is always, always a good one. And then last little bit of shout out. I I was randomly talking to some people that were at the booth and they ended up also being from Philadelphia and they're in the group called, they're in a group called liberation Philadelphia who after talking to them a bunch we don't agree on on every single aspect of vegan advocacy, but they are definitely they're enthusiastic and and they are receptive to hearing other people's viewpoints about veganism, which I think is super crucial and 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 I think a lot of organizations are lacking that reflection and and willingness to hear others' views. So just wanted to give them a little shout out. Very nice. Paul, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Did you meet the Supreme Master? 
I did not. So Loving Hut had a booth there, and next to the Loving Hut booth, the Su- Supreme Master had their own uh, booth. And if you don't know what that is, just Google into the strange, the the lore, the canon of Loving Hut restaurants. <laughs> but I don't believe the actual Supreme Master was there, although the booth, I think, was for specifically Supreme Master TV. I did not get to go to the booth, which I'm bummed about, but next time. Next time. All right. I think it's time to dive into those listener emails we were talking about. So this first one is coming to us from Janet I. And this is in response to, I don't know, remember if it was last week or the week before, but Andy, I believe it was you that said, I wish that there was a response that people could say when, when, when they came up to us at events and they said, what's up, Beardos, if there was something that we could say back or that there was some secret exchange that could go back and forth that would leave other people around being like, oh, what's this? I want, I want to get in on this. <laughs> so Janet emailed us in with a suggestion and Janet said, wouldn't it be fun to make your response to the what's up Beardo question a rhyming one? If Paul is not with you, Andy could start out by saying, first of all, missing Paul, but <laughs> dot, dot, dot. And then another little rhyme phrase such as, and then Janet listed a, a few nice rhyming schemes. I like these. So should we alternate on these, Andy? Sure. <laughs> so the first one is happy and well, can't you tell? Selling shirts and dreaming of desserts. <laughs> Doing just fine. Ain't gonna whine. Hunky dory. What's your story? <laughs> I like that one. No <laughs> need to button. Here's your button. I like that one too. <laughs> and then, of course, the one Taylor made for me. How can you help me? Get me a bond me. Nice. Yeah. Tailored, tailored specifically <laughs> to Andy. Although I would also not refuse a bond me. Either, yeah. So. And, and Janet did include a few others, but those are the cream of the crop right there. The so. stars of the show. The stars yeah. of the show, don't you know? <laughs> there you go so yeah i don't know i i, I feel like we could be on something here i'd love to know if, if listeners had any other suggestions so keep them coming help us form this secret conversation that we can this cryptic conversation we can have at live events yeah i, I don't know paul if i want other people around to so much be like i want to get in on that as have them just question what the hell is going on in their life <laughs> is this real All right, so we got uh, an email from Joanna M., and a few other people asked us this on on various forms of social media, so thank you to everyone that's prodded us on this issue, asking us if we were planning to review Dominion. Now, listeners may remember that we discussed the Dominion trailer. I don't know how long ago it was, but it was the one that had that great song that sounded like a way better version of Coldplay or something. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, and I actually said, you know what? I think I might actually watch this one because I feel like the the trailer is so well done and it feels very inspiring. But the the moment uh, for that to to happen is is now upon us because it's currently touring Australia, and we're on the street. Is that it's going to be coming to the United States right now? Paul, I, we have not actually talked about this at all, so I, I'm curious. Do you have any desire to view Dominion? Are you saying we're going to take a trip to Australia and visit one of those premieres? Because yes, yes, I'm down with that. <laughs> but on the real, I wouldn't mind doing Dominion. This is the one that we thought was very Earthlings-like, right? Yeah. It's it's like the Australian Earthlings. Seems like it. I would say maybe let's see let's see some of the reviews of it. Let's get a little bit more information on it. I wouldn't mind doing it. But at the same time, 
I feel like if it's that exact same content, I don't, you know, I I don't know if it'd be a tough watch, but maybe an important one to see if it is something that we should be promoting. Because at this point, since Earthlings is a little bit older, maybe it's kind of the thing that can replace it. Not because it's necessarily better, but just because it's more current and and you can advertise it to people as like, this is this new thing versus, oh, hey, watch this movie from 10 years ago type of deal, you know? Do you know what does carry over from Earthlings, though? What's that? Joaquin Phoenix. Wait, is he in Dominion as well? Yeah, apparently. Oh, <laughs> nice. So I actually responded to Joanna in email form, but I figured we'd have this conversation on air for the benefit of everyone else. I personally have reassessed my position. I have zero interest in seeing this film, not because I don't think that it would be a useful film in advocacy, perhaps for some people. But for me personally, from what I've seen so far, and Joanna says this as well, essentially it's it's two hours of unrelenting misery and you know graphic abuse of animals, and I feel like I am I am on board. I'm on the team already, and for me personally, experiencing those images at least in such a long form piece of content is not something that spurs me to be more active. It doesn't inspire me to do more for the animals. It sort of shuts me down. It makes me angry. It makes me very misanthropic. It doesn't put me in the place that is a good place to be if I'm trying to reach out to non-vegans. I definitely hear your point, Paul, in that, hey, it'd be good to see it just so we know if it's something that we could recommend to other people. Because I think for some people, yes, these types of films are the wake-up call that they need. Uh, does it need to be two hours? I, I guess that remains to be seen if if we see the whole film. I'm sure it's very thorough in documenting how horrible humans are to, to animals. But for me personally, I don't really have an interest in seeing it. But I would be really interested to know what any Beardos that have seen the film think about it. Yeah, maybe it, let us know if you've seen it. Or maybe I'll just read some more reviews after it's been released in a like slightly wider form and depending on that maybe andy even if you don't want to watch it i'll check it out and then i can report back in on it yeah if you're willing to put yourself through that paul i'd love to hear i'm not i'm not i'm not to say about it i'm not nailing anything down in concrete right now i'm just saying it's a possibility all right all right fair enough so that's that's it on dominion let us know if you've seen it and what you think of it just send us an email beardvegans at gmail.com and we got one more email to go over today. Don't forget, we got that mailbag episode coming up soon. So this one is from Beth Ann, who emailed in. Just finished the anti-consumerism episode you did with the princesses. I'm sorry to say that it has left me feeling, well, upset. I don't know how to feel and if my feelings are wrong. I usually never disagree with Nicole and Callie, but I feel like their modification of the word or label vegan to practicing veganism instead is putting the whole shift of being vegan on humans. To me, being vegan is about animal liberation. What is being done to animals is abhorrent. It's not about me or my feelings. Of course, those vegans who may slip up or struggle along the way should not be shunned, but the word shouldn't be modified to be empathetic towards human beings. You're either vegan or you're not. 
you shouldn't have your vegan card removed just because you slipped up, but it shouldn't be acceptable that you can only practice veganism four days a week. Veganism is something that can be attainable by all. And if someone is struggling, vegans can step in as the decent human beings they are to help guide or support their way. Animals are being slaughtered by the billions. That is the focus. Just like Nicole mentions, quote, practicing anti-racism as opposed to just not being racist. I am not racist. I don't need to practice it because it's just already me. Thoughts on this? I feel like you were trying to defend the vegan label a bit, wondering if it made you uncomfortable as well. I cannot process my emotions at the moment. So this was directed at me because I was the one that did the interview with, with Callie and Nicole. And actually, Bethann and I have had a, a bit of an email exchange over it. But, you know, we've gotten some really good feedback on this episode and figured that it'd be good to extend that conversation to the podcast as well. I think that, you know, like we said in the episode one, if you haven't listened to it yet, definitely go listen to it because this conversation will make a lot more sense if you do. But... I think that, you know, it presents a lot of challenging ideas that sort of push back on sort of these like traditional notions of like what being vegan means. And so, uh, yes, I, I don't necessarily think that I'm like 100% in line with everything that, that we talked about. There are things that I'm still kicking around in my head. But on these specific points, I, I feel like I actually really agree with Callie and Nicole. So, in regards to this idea that, you know, practicing veganism versus just being vegan, that, that doing that puts the emphasis on the, the person rather than the animals. I actually think it's the opposite of that. I think that sort of just being vegan is sort of like a label that we humans give to ourselves. And it's sort of this like badge that we wear. It's a part of our identities. And so I think that makes it very much a part of us. Like, we are vegan, vegans do this, oh, vegans are always like that. But if it's someone that's practicing veganism, that means that there's like actions that people have to take. It's not just like a label that someone wears and they are. It's sort of ta it, to me, practicing veganism means it's a process. It's always something that we're working on. And, you know, like, yes, there are people like you and I, Paul, that have been vegan for a very long time. It feels very second nature. It feels... To me, it just feels like breathing. It's just like a part of who I am and what I do. And I know what I eat and I know what I don't buy. And and here I am, of course, discussing veganism in terms of very consumerist <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, you know, way of thinking about it. But as, as far as this idea that, you know, you're vegan or you're not, that's one of those things where I think it's like, yes, but also no. I think I personally probably would draw that line in a different place than, than Callie and Nicole might. But I, I think to say you're either vegan or you're not is in some ways inaccurate because it's like, yes, we can claim the title of vegan and there's sort of some very basic ones where I think like if, you know, generally eating meat, eggs, dairy, etc. as long as you're making a conscious effort to not do those things, I feel like, okay, it's pretty safe to call yourself vegan. But there's other things on the other side of that vegan line that I think a lot of people disagree on. Like, for instance, when you buy a bread, are you looking up the source of your mono and diglycerides? 
Are you worried about your your bone char? Are you worried about you know a shared grill for cooking a, a cow flesh versus a veggie burger? You know things like that 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 vegans disagree on, and I don't think that anyone that makes one choice or the other in regards to those things is necessarily more or less vegan than the other one. But I think that someone could say, well, I choose to uh, to like fervently research all of the monodiglycerides. I, I do all of these things, and therefore I'm vegan. But if you don't do those things, you're not. So that's why I feel like this line kind of gets muddied. And I think that, that in, in some ways that's what Kelly and Nicole were trying to get at. And so sort of transposing that over into this, this sentence about you know practicing anti-racism versus not being racist— I think it's for for any ally to any oppressed group, it's really dangerous when anyone thinks I am this ally. This is my badge. This is what I am. I am not racist because it gives us the sense of complacency. It makes us think that we don't have more work to do. But I, I can guarantee anyone that's an ally to any movement that there's always more work to do. There's always learning to do. And, you know, if you feel like I am I am not racist and I have nothing more to learn, that puts you in a position where if someone calls you on something that you've done that is racist, you're kind of like, but I'm not racist, so I can't have done something that's racist. And it's like, no, it's a process for all of us. We're sort of always moving on in this journey. So I think that is a lot of what Callie and Nicole are trying to get at. And I think that those are really useful ways of looking at veganism and for me personally, I'm not going to stop calling myself vegan, but I think that talking about it in terms of, you know, I practice veganism, I think that in certain conversations that can be really a, a useful tool. And uh, and I guess the last thing that I'll say is that, you know, it shouldn't be acceptable to practice veganism four days a week. You know, again, I don't think that that conversation was about giving people permission, like a permission slip to go ahead and and consume animals. And, and, you know, because we're not trying to say, oh, everyone should be flexitarian or reducetarian or something like that, but sort of about being understanding of the people that that are working their way towards being fully vegan. And and I, I think that there's like there's a difference there in encouraging someone to eat less animal products versus saying veganism means that you only have to practice it like three or four days a week. I think that that, that was sort of the distinction that we're trying to get at within that conversation. So. Hopefully that clears them some things up for, for people that were feeling ambivalent about that conversation. Again, I think there's a lot of really great ideas in there. I think ones that I, I will certainly be wrestling with. I'm sure Paul and I will continue to wrestle with on the podcast. But definitely please keep your thoughts coming in about this conversation because I am not concrete on anything. I'm always open to learning and hearing other people's points of view. So thank you very much to Beth Ann for, for bringing that up and, and making me re-examine those points that we talked about and making me sort of do the mental work to, to see where I really stand on it. Can I, can I throw something into the ring, Andy? Please. So I, I think that the, the comparison between practicing anti-racism versus just not being racist and practicing veganism versus being vegan, I feel like it's, that's a, a more difficult, it's a difficult comparison to make because like you were talking about with how with about being an ally and using ally as a label. Like I don't, I feel like it's, it's maybe not a one-to-one comparison because I don't think the, I don't think that the cow cares what we call ourselves. They just care that they're not being eaten. 
versus I feel like allyship is, I don't want to say more nuanced, but maybe more nuanced with things like practicing anti-racism versus just not being racist. Like, I feel like there's maybe a, a different discussion that could go into that. So that's one, that's one thought that I had. And then the other thought was, I will say, I do think that specifically for the vegan movement, I I think that there there can be certainly benefits to having the label like I am vegan. And I think that that can help foster a community versus just if you have a group of people that are practicing veganism. And I think that that has its benefits. I'm sure that we can also think of of cons that it has as well to kind of form that identity. But I think in order to, to, in terms of keeping people vegan, I think that that identity, that's one way that that identity can be useful. So I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely something I struggle with because I do think it's really important to have a sort of a specific label that has sort of a set of practices attached to it, which is sort of this like roadmap for people that that want to do the best they can to not harm animals, to not be a part of that exploitation that so many of us are or were a part of. And and so yeah, I don't I don't personally think that like throwing that out is is like the best thing. And I think that there is a lot of value in that label. And and so to me I guess I feel like there's room for for both vegan, the label of vegan and the term practicing veganism within our movement. And Paul, yeah, I definitely agree. Like, I think that it's it's hard to compare those these two movements, these two isms, because, you know, animal the fight for animal liberation and, and like the vegan movement is a movement entirely composed of allies for those that we can't, you know, directly communicate with and ask you know, what, how exactly, what words do you want us to use? And, and, you know, how do you want us to conduct ourselves in order to best serve you? There's obviously some very educated guesses that we can make about that. So yeah, it's definitely navigating allyship within pretty much any other movement, except for maybe the environmental movement, you know, is like a much more complicated thing than, or much more nuanced, at least, than 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 necessarily being a vegan, because being a vegan means it's just a bunch of allies sort of competing to say what's the best way for us to act in the interest of these animals. You just got to listen to Mother Nature, man. <sighs> Paul. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so. <laughs> so I think that's all we got for our, our this was a little pre-mailbag emails, email follow-up. Is that the mail that came before email? Pre-mail? Pre-mail. Nice. I like that, Andy. That was good. Yeah. That was good. Just, re- just regular mail. <laughs> so let's get into our follow-up. Andy, I am both excited and disgusted by the, the, the prospect <laughs> of this and the title of this. Yeah. You know, almost all this follow-up is, is, for the most part, it's more news that just happens to relate to things we've talked about previously. So consider this news and follow-up kind of all in one. But this just came out yesterday as of the time of recording, April 11th, 2018. 
Get ready for bleeding veggie sliders at White Castle. <laughs> they heard they heard our episodes. They heard me criticizing how everything is bleeding, and they said, "Let's throw in some more." What 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 is it that people want? Is it blood? We can give you blood. We have we can put so much blood in everything. We have blood fries. We have blood burgers. So yes, this means that the Impossible Burger is coming to White Castle, and I believe it actually started just today. If the post by any of my vegan friends are any indication it's going to currently be at 140 locations across new york new jersey and chicago and paul so we have talked a lot about the impossible burger and the issues with the animal testing and how we're not huge fans of that but we also sort of understand the limitations of of the system right now and and so I guess that, like, while this is happening, I choose to be happy about the fact that, you know, vegan meats are becoming more accessible to other people. And we have previously derided Impossible Foods for their incredibly slow rollout of this product mm-hmm. that had been in, like, it's been, what, like two years now? where it's just been in these restaurants and it's like super exclusive and you can only get it at lunchtime and only one per person. And then it started to roll out to more. It's at like bear burger. It's at umami burger and things like that. But it, we're still just like, come on. Like the beyond burger is everywhere right now. Can we just, can we just get the impossible burger? Can we just buy a container at a store? Can it be in a fast food place? So it's actually I was shocked to see this news because it means that they're going to like I feel like White Castle to me is kind of often considered like a lowest common denominator fast food even like among <laughs> fast food you know so it like totally flies in the face of this image that they were previously trying to cultivate which was like this very kind of upscale like plant meat for for restaurants to use Yeah Yeah but but I'll say this Andy I think that this is huge because, yes, White Castle is not, you know, the top three fast food places, but I think that this is an entryway. And if this if this takes off, you I, like I wouldn't I could imagine seeing like McDonald's or Burger King carrying either the Beyond Burger or the Impossible Burger in in within 2018. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is just, I feel like the the toothpaste is out of the tube at this point. <laughs> and the fact that, that even for like a year or two now, the White Castle has been sort of the leader in providing vegan burgers from these like very cheap fast food perspectives. Uh, you know, they started with their, their Dr. Prager veggie burger, which I thought was pretty horrible. But then they introduced their <laughs> black bean burger, which I thought was like pretty all right. And then they mm-hmm. just made this leap to the Impossible Burger, and it's it's like amazing that they're doing this before one of like the big three. Who's the big three? McDonald's, Burger King, Taco Bell. I was thinking McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's. Oh, Wendy's, yeah, yeah, yeah. For in terms of burgers, but, but Andy, I'll say this: I I want to applaud White Castle because I remember we covered. You heard it first here, folks. We covered when when White Castle got those other vegan burgers and you had some and you were like, these are okay. I want to applaud them because I don't know how much those took off. I don't know that many vegans that went to White Castle to get those. So for them to be like, Hey, this vegan thing, this first vegan thing didn't work. Let's do another vegan thing. I think that that's pretty cool. 
Well, actually, I don't know if it didn't work. I'm speculating completely based on the fact that I don't know anyone besides you that got one, Andy. <laughs> but and I only did it out of my due diligence and my my duty as a reporter of, <laughs> of vegan food. But like they're the fact that they're cha- they already had something and they're changing it to this. Like I think that that's awesome. Yeah, and I don't even know if they're changing it. I feel like they're also. I assume they're going to keep the other ones, but but who who knows? I don't know. I don't know. So I don't know. I mean, it's exciting. I, I think that the one thing that uh, was was curious to me that I'm wondering how well this will do outside of the vegans that are specifically going to look for it uh, is the fact that the price point is quite a bit higher than their regular burger. So. In the the article over at Grub Street, which we'll we'll link to in the show notes that we got this news from, it said that the burger was going to cost one ninety nine, and this is a slider, so they're pretty small. And I was wondering how much is a cow flesh slider at White Castle, and the original slider is seventy nine cents. That's cheap. It is very cheap. It's so cheap that you're able to get a briefcase full of hamburgers at White Castle. I was about to, I was about to say, Andy. I saw that you put the price point up here, and I was I was I couldn't wait to bring up the fact that I will bring a briefcase full of money and exchange <laughs> it for a briefcase full of these Impossible Burger sliders. Yeah, and okay, so the original slider seventy nine cents. You can get a double slider for a dollar forty two, or you can get a cheese slider for ninety cents. Now, this burger default, the Impossible Burger, does come with a slice of cheese. So you got to ask for no cheese. The buns no. are vegan. The buns have been vegan for a while. I know there's still some confusion in the the vegan Facebook world about that, but the buns are vegan. So, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how many people that are just sort of like Joe Schmo off the street are going to walk in and see that and say, "Let me pay more than double what I normally pay for for a White Castle burger to try this thing." Yeah. But relatively speaking, you know, two bucks, I assume, you know, you got to buy two or three of them to probably feel full, get some fries. It's, it's as far as like a vegan fast food burger goes, you know, it's, it's relatively accessible, I suppose. So does, does, is two or three, how many people buy? I was like, I was like, well, if I buy five or six, that's still not going to be very expensive. <laughs> well, I think the average person probably eats two or three. I think that's so like, that... they have like combo meals. Like the the picture that I saw, you could get a combo meal of this, which was, it was kind of an interesting combo. It was an impossible burger, a regular burger, fries, and I think a drink for like five bucks. So it's like kind of weird that they're like, you can get a, a vegan burger and a meat burger. You know what though? That might get people to try it. That's true. And they might even be like, you know what? I can't even tell the difference. Or they might, they'll probably go, wow, this Impossible Burger is so much better than the bullshit that White Castle has been serving me all these years. <laughs> I guess we'll get these from now on. Like, I I bet that's going to happen. I, I wonder if there's someone on the inside that's that's pushing this agenda. Yeah, it's, so. I, it's a really interesting strategy because obviously that's not aimed at vegans. And again, that's, you know, Impossible keeps saying we're not for vegans. That's not our goal is to get a share of the vegan market. So, yeah, I'd be really curious to see how that strategy it's, – it's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off. <laughs> I'm stoked about this, Andy, and I'm making a commute from Philadelphia to Connecticut tomorrow. Driving through New Jersey might have to make a stop somewhere. Yeah, I'll be driving north soon, so we'll see. We'll see. 
We'll see. All right. So we got the next bit of follow-up. Actually, it's sort of a long time coming. I, I don't remember when we talked about this, but we, we speculated wildly on what was going on with this situation way back when, and now we finally have some answers. So what is this, Paul? So this is coming to us from Veg News. Chloe Coscarelli files lawsuit to reclaim by Chloe name. And this is from, again, this is also from yesterday, April 11th. Well, Paul, before you read that, let me just say that to, to give people sort of a brief rundown of this by Chloe, uh, the, the restaurant by Chef Chloe Coscarelli became wildly successful and they were opening several different branches. And then all of a sudden it was announced that Chloe was no longer a part of it and didn't hear much from, from Chloe herself, I assume because of being tied up in all the, these legal battles. And there was these rumors going around that the, the company that sort of was helping her that she had partnered with to open these restaurants wanted to keep her name, but introduce non-vegan products and, and all, all of these rumors that weren't really substantiated. And, they were sort of swirling around and uh, you know, we obviously everyone felt really horrible for Chloe because here's a restaurant with her name on it that she's no longer attached to and presumably no longer making profit off of. And there was a lengthy legal battle and veg news got their hands on the court transcripts of this. And that sort of gave us some answers as to what actually was going on here, or at least what allegedly was actually going on here. So go ahead and read from that article. After seeing Chloe's success, the lawsuit states that E-Squared CEO James Haber became infatuated with Coscarelli and began a jealous and threatening campaign aimed at trying to control Coscarelli and acquire the rights to her personal brand. The lawsuit uncovered a revealing email exchange between Haber and his daughter by Chloe co-founder Samantha Wasser dated August 16th, 2016. We milk it till we can't, Haber wrote. Milk what? Wasser asked. Her name, Haber responded. The lawsuit also alleges that Haber commenced action to remove Coscarelli from the Buy Chloe brand after she rejected his inappropriate advances. Haber began sending threatening messages to Coscarelli and her family and demanded Coscarelli meet with him alone so he could share private feelings he said he had towards Coscarelli and about their relationship. The complaint states, spurned again and reeling from rejection, Haber used E-squared to seize control of Buy Chloe, effectively excluding Coscarelli from all business operations. Damn. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, when it was all happening, E squared and I guess James Haber was, you know, saying that Coscarelli wasn't making decisions that were in the best interest of the, the restaurant brand and that they wanted to open locations and she was sort of preventing it from happening. And that was sort of the picture that they painted. So it left me thinking like, I don't know what to believe. I don't know if this means I should be boycotting by Chloe or what's going on. So I think seeing this definitely gives us a better picture of what was actually happening because, you know, the, the allegations against her didn't really make sense that she was trying to, you know, like slow down the progress of, of her, you know, empire essentially that she was building. And yeah, and this narrative certainly makes a, a lot more sense as to what was going on. It feels like it's sort of a, a tale as old as time in many regards. Yeah. Was it, was it a bike? Was it? Did we originally cover this because it was there was like a protest outside of by Chloe? You know, I don't think we covered the protest, but there was a protest. Yeah, and and I do remember being like, like, wait, what the heck? Like vegans protesting a vegan restaurant, but 
Yeah, I think yeah. I mean the 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 passersby in the video from that protest certainly seemed very confused. So, yeah, it was it was just sort of like a really bizarre situation overall. But yeah, I mean it definitely is a pretty horrible situation for for Chloe, and you know we feel for her situation and, and definitely stand by her. And it certainly does not make me want to return to that restaurant. Yeah, definitely not. Definitely not. No matter how good their shiitake bacon was. <laughs> All right, Andy, do you want to read this last bit of follow-up? Yeah, so last episode we talked about this story involving a group called Evolve Our Prison Farms. And essentially what this story is all about is uh, prison farms, which had been sort of closed down in Canada around 2010, were beginning to to reopen and they were going to be animal-based operations. And this group, Evolve Our Prison Farms, wanted to step in and say, no, they shouldn't be animal-based operations. They should be plant-based agriculture. So Paul read this story, and I was left with questions about, you know, like, what is, is this a situation where, where people are laboring and creating profits to some corporation? Are they just sort of producing food for their own prison to eat? Like, what is this situation? And we didn't have any answers at the time, so I did a little more research and found some really interesting stuff. So so first of all, um, the main issue is at this Joyceville institution, and uh, according to Evolver Prison Farms, the goat farm that was installed there is essentially going to be used to produce milk for the Faihe Chinese Infant Formula Factory. So, yes, indeed, this is something where a corporation is profiting off of the prison labor system. And uh, I guess also what kind of makes this a little difficult for us to cover is the fact that it's in Canada, not the U.S. So, you know, obviously there's sort of differences in how, how different countries operate their prison systems, and the U.S. is notoriously really horrible in that regard. Mm-hmm. So, but my biggest question was, is this group working to essentially switch over this system of exploiting the the prison workers because they're notoriously, prison workers are notoriously paid a ridiculously low wage for the work that they do, and it's essentially slavery or damn near slavery or indentured servitude, however you want to look at it. And if they're just trying to switch over the system of plant-based agriculture, it's like, okay, yes, I'd rather it be that, but it doesn't it feel like, like, sort of wrong-headed that it's because they they claim that they want a system of agriculture that is not exploitive of anyone but it feels like you're still exploiting the labor force of the prisoners there so that was the main thing i was looking for i was looking at all these different articles i I combed through the evolver prison farms website couldn't find anything really specific about this fact that i was looking for they talked a lot about what they thought would be the the benefits to the prisoners that doing this type of work can help with rehabilitation and and teach them job skills for when they get out and I couldn't really tell if that was true or just sort of a bunch of fluff. And I was looking through all these articles and I couldn't find information. And so eventually I started looking for who who runs these prison farms, like who's in charge of that. So I found that uh, the prison farms would be run by Corcan, which is a division of the Correctional Services of Canada, CSC. Now, Paul, Corcan is in every incident is spelled C-O-R-C-A-N, all capitals. And I'm like, what is this an acronym for? <laughs> And I couldn't find it anywhere, like not even on the Corkhand website. And finally, <laughs> I like on like the tenth, you know, like a Google page, I found that it stands for just just the first three letters of Correctional Canada. 
That's so funny. It was so frustrating. <laughs> it was so frustrating to find that. So I said, okay, I'm, let me look into what this company is all about. If I know anything about companies involved in prison labor, it's usually that they're up to no good. And I found this article from August 30th of 2017 that we'll put a link in the show notes, of course, titled Prisoners Making 195 a Day Want a Raise. Taxpayers Want a Break. So this article talks about how in 2013, inmates were receiving $6.90 a day or less. And the conservative government at this time and candidates conservative or liberal announced a 30% pay cut in the wages paid to prison laborers. And that after other deductions, essentially the inmates were going to make a dollar and 95 cents per day. So that's not good. Obviously. Mm. Let me read a little bit from this article. Critics on both the left and right have serious questions about whether the 37 year old program should exist at all. Corcan put subsidized goods made with below market labor costs in competition with the private sector, puts taxpayers on the hook for a government-run business venture that posts a loss most years, and puts public safety at risk by releasing offenders into the community with limited resources to start a new life without returning to crime. The inmates aren't happy either. In affidavits submitted as part of the court case, they describe measures taken by CSC staff to keep up participation in Corcan programs following the pay cut. Inmates said CSC staff told them that refusing to work for Corcan could affect their chances of parole or getting transferred to a lower security institution. One inmate, Claude Jolie, at Quebec's Drummond Penitentiary, included his submission a letter from a correctional staff threatening him with time in solitary confinement if he refused Corcan work. So... Basically, it really sours the whole Evolve Our Prison Farms campaign for me. Um, I'm not sure how you're feeling about this. Like, I do feel conflicted because a lot of the the literature that Evolver Prison Farms is putting out is saying that they did uh, sort of an informal interview of 143 inmates and they would prefer overwhelmingly to do work with plant-based agriculture and not raising animals and and some of them talked about how traumatizing that is. And, and obviously, you know, putting people around violence, whether an inmate or not, is it's not good for anything. It could make them more violent. It can certainly increase rates of depression and, and all of these really bad things. It's hard to imagine that anyone in, in any situation in life, but especially someone in prison, that their situation would be aided by constantly being exposed to the violence that happens in a slaughterhouse uh, or even mm-hmm. on like a dairy farm sort of treating animals as commodities. So so it's like on one level, I, I do feel for it. And if this is something that the prisoners would prefer to do, then maybe this is a good campaign to run. But I'm also just so conflicted about supporting something that is that essentially going to put money to the pockets of this really horrible corporation that's exploiting the prisoners as well. So I feel like of all of our prison farms, probably themselves, I would guess won't make any profits from this. It's all going to like Corcan. Mm-hmm. But I think after, after hearing all this, Andy, like I, I think that they're trying to change like what, they're trying to change how this specific farm operates versus just getting abolishing the farms completely. And maybe that's that might be the thing that they should be working for instead. I'm hesitant to say, but like I'm because I'm not going to tell them like, oh, no, you're doing the wrong work. You should be doing this work instead. But I feel like maybe it would be better if they if their advocacy was instead of like switching what kind of labor that these prisoners, that these inmates 
are doing, just getting rid of it completely. You know what I mean? Or, or like changing different aspects about it, which maybe, maybe they are too, but like making it non, making it voluntary, making them get paid higher wages. Like if they were also working towards those things, I think I would be in support of it. But if it was just from what, like what you're, you're making it seem like Andy, or from these articles you're making it seem like if it's literally just like the same conditions, just a different product, then for the inmate's sake, I don't think that I would support something like this. Yeah, I think probably what bothers me about it is the most is that the Evolver Prison Farms is putting out this message that that switching to plant-based agriculture would then make a system that doesn't exploit anybody. They sort of repeatedly use that language. And it just reminds me of when people refer to vegan food or some vegan product as being cruelty-free when that isn't necessarily true. There's there's so many other factors, especially human factors, um, that, that come along with those things. So it just bugs me that that piece of the puzzle is is absent from the conversation entirely. And I, like yeah. I said, I combed through the website. I couldn't really find any mention of it. I had to look through all these other sources and sort of follow a specific trail to get to these answers. And it, it just it feels like to me that there are other avenues for helping animals that don't involve reinforcing this horrible prison industrial labor system. Yeah, I agree. And, and Although it does seem, I don't know, maybe this isn't a weird thing, but it does seem maybe on a slightly hopeful note, maybe on the fact that this, the products that they produce wouldn't be used for profit, that it would be like a completely different, I feel like economic system that they would be working with. Like it's like they wouldn't be able to sell to the same people. They would have to, it'd be a completely different thing. So maybe that's an indication that it wouldn't be for profits anymore, but I'm also just grasping for straws right now. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that it would be just for like food grown for the, for the prisoners. They talk about that as being one possible use, but it just doesn't it doesn't seem likely. Now, now one thing that does get brought up though is is they say it could be plant-based agriculture or it could be like a farmed animal sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And there's not really money to be made in animal sanctuaries. Uh, you know, obviously the people that run them have to put an immense amount of time and effort into, you know, raising money to keep them going via fundraising and, and all of those things. So that seems like something that could potentially be an avenue that, that maybe wouldn't be objectionable. And it could be something that, you know, let's, let's inmates bond with, with animals and, and form loving, nurturing relationships with these animals. And it isn't one where some product is being exported and, you know, where they're getting paid a dollar and 95 cents a day to do all this labor, you know, because I think that the conditions that we set forth, or at least that, that I thought might be the most agreeable was, if they have a prison farm and it's inmates voluntarily participating, which from the article I read, it doesn't seem very voluntary to me. But if they're voluntarily participating and it's strictly to grow food for themselves and to gain life skills for uh, upon their release, that seems like it'd be a worthwhile endeavor. But I don't know. I mean, I'm sure people would say, well, this is just a a small step in that direction. You're not going to get them to abolish prison farms in one go. So if we do this, this is at least a step in the right direction. I know people say that, but again, it just, it seems like misguided. I think though that 
if they are somehow able to get prison sanctuaries, I think that the whole like, oh, this is one small step in the right direction. Like if they can get prison sanctuaries, I feel like that would be that would be proof that you can get a huge step because that would be something that not it would not only be not profitable for them, but it would cause them to have to raise money or get money somehow to for to to take care of the animals. So if that's possible, like I don't know how that would be possible and I don't know how they would ever agree to something where it would cost them money, but that would be cool. Yeah, if you if you know according to the story, the taxpayers are all upset that they're paying the prisoners the measly wages that they are. So it's hard to imagine that they would get money for that. That almost seems like sort of a pipe dream that Evolve Our Prison Farms is just sort of throwing out there. And and again, I feel like in general our whole prison system needs to be abolished. So that's you know that's just me. Call me old fashioned, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. Again, the whole thing just sort of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah, no, I feel you. I feel you. Thank you for doing more research on that, Andy. Oh, my my pleasure, Paul. Ooh, hey, Beardos. So in between when we recorded this conversation and before we had a chance to release it, we actually got an email from Calvin Newfield, who is the founder of Evolve Our Prison Farms. And so we thought it would just be pertinent to read Calvin's response to our discussion on last week's episode now, just in the sake of balance and, and fairness to Evolve Our Prison Farms. So this is the majority of the emails we're about to read. I notice you have a lot of questions. I am happy to help clarify. First, the prison farm program will not be mandatory for prisoners. It's a voluntary program for minimum security inmates intended to assist in rehabilitation and prepping inmates for reintegration into the community. Inmates receive a low amount of pay to a maximum of $690 per day, in addition to the life skills, job training, etc. Before the prison farm program was shut down in 2011 by the former conservative government, it produced milk, meat, and eggs to feed to prisoners and to donate to community food banks. Now the government will be implementing a model that will see goat milk sold out to a multinational infant formula factory, which will ship 85% of its product to China. We are just a community group. We have no say in prison programming, and neither are we advocates of prisons. In fact, over the past two years of our campaign, we have become avid advocates of prisoner justice. The government is moving ahead with the restoration of prison farms, beginning in Kingston, Ontario, the penitentiary capital of Canada, where we live. When we heard about this two years ago and the government's intention to return animal agriculture to prison farms, that's when we launched our campaign. Our message, if prison farms are returned, then it is our government's obligation to honor its commitment to prioritizing environmental sustainability and climate change solutions by modeling innovative plant-based agriculture, not animal agriculture with its heavy footprint. This would also be consistent with the current revisions to Canada's food guide, which prisons follow, which will remove dairy as a food group and emphasize plant-based sources of protein. Most importantly, we are firmly opposing any exploitive use of animals for food or milk. The practices necessitated by animal agriculture are in direct contrast to the goals of rehabilitation. The government claims that animal therapy is the core benefit of the prison farm program. We have argued passionately that animal agriculture is not a model of animal therapy, and we have built a strong evidence-based case, including testimonies from experts in law, criminology, rehabilitation, and interpersonal and animal abuse. 
The government has ignored the evidence in pursuit of what appears to be a short-sighted business deal with foreign economic interests, which will put prisoners and therapy animals directly in harm's way. And therapy is in quotation marks there. We are working to protect prisons and prisoners from the exploitation of any kind. I understand and share all your reservations about prison and prison labor. What the government is doing is the worst possible excuse for prisoner rehabilitation we could have imagined. This only scratches the surface of the issues and the story that's unfolding. So again, that was the email from Calvin Newfield. And I think we certainly empathize with with Calvin here. And, you know, it's tough. Obviously, no one's in favor of prison labor. So I think that sort of throws a wrench in the works and people saying, well, this this system is crappy. And we're trying to do the best we can within this system for the best outcome for the animals. So totally get that and thought it would be good to include Calvin's email on the show. Let's get back to the rest of the program. All right. Well, before we move on, we need to send a huge, 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 huge thank you to our brand new Patreon donors that joined us in this past week. So a huge thank you to Wendy E, Micah B, Michelle P, and Jones S. So thank Thank you. you. (laughs) Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. If you would like to support the podcast on a small recurring monthly basis or a one-time donation of any size of your choosing, just head over to thebeardvegans.com slash beardo. And that'll give you a couple of options. And for those that do support on Patreon, you get access to our little exclusive Patreon feed where we put our bonus episodes, extra content, make a couple posts. There's some blooper videos up there. And uh, you can even get some physical rewards like buttons and stickers. And Paul, I actually just sent out uh, the batch of physical rewards to everyone that pledged at the uh, physical reward level or higher for the month of March. I just sent those out, and it was really cool because that's that was the first like large group of Patreon donors that we've had. And it was really cool to, one, see names that we're used to interacting with all the time, but also just a couple of new names as well. And uh, hey, send us some emails. Like, let us know what you're thinking. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Uh, but it was also really cool to see where people lived. And I started keeping a little tally of the states that we were sending some of these prizes oh, to. Nice. It was also really cool that Andy came up with silly names for me every single time in the postcard that he sent as well. I started writing handwritten thank yous. So apologies to everyone that last month did not get one. But I, I was signing it just my name. And I said, it'd be nice to sign Paul's name as well. <laughs> and then by like the 30th or 40th like you know package i just started getting real real silly with paul's name so if anyone <laughs> got a signature from paul raw tofu stellar <laughs> that was my handiwork <laughs> and there's a couple other ones paul we got we got people living in alaska california connecticut florida illinois kansas kentucky massachusetts new jersey new york ohio oregon vermont and virginia and australia New Zealand, England, and some place called Scottish Borders. So, oh, international Scottish all over borders. the place. Thank you once again to everyone that did contribute. Nice. Thank you so much. Thank you so much again. And now, Andy, speaking of Patreon <laughs> stuff, what's this main topic? Are we about to convince people to stop supporting us on Patreon, Paul? <laughs> we just may be 
doing that. All right. So our question this week is, should activists get paid? Now, this is a very broad topic, but we sort of have a specific focus that we wanted to talk about. So, you know, Paul, we've talked about this a little bit on the show, but we have been doing this work, this podcast for two and a half, uh, coming up on three years, I think, a couple months maybe. And, uh, you know, we, we always sort of battled if we should reach out to our listeners and ask for for financial support to keep the podcast going and cover the costs that, that get incurred while doing this. And, and we chose to do Patreon to do so. And I've sort of noticed this trend of, of a lot of activists using Patreon to raise funds. And so it sort of had me reflecting on all of these things. And I want to bring a couple of questions to you about the nature of activism. Should people get paid? So we're not talking about you know, sort of the mainstream nonprofit groups and people that get a salary from those. We're talking about people that are doing some form of activism or aspire to do some form of activism. People that have turned to their fans and followers and said, hey, if you give me money, I will be able to quit my job and I can do animal activism full time. I will be able to devote myself entirely to helping the animals. And all I need is you to contribute a couple of bucks a month or or more. Some people ask for up to a hundred bucks a month and some people are willing to pay that. So I don't want to use any specific names in this conversation because again, this is one of the situations where I don't think it's about the specific people that are doing this. But there are certainly a lot of high-profile names that people have seen in, in YouTube videos. and Or from, from stories of getting cookies stolen from Paul. <laughs> from stories of people pepper-spraying themselves in the name of animals. And, you know, <laughs> you, might, you might be able to figure this out from some of the quotes that we're going to read. But again, it's not about these people. But I do think it's important to talk about because I think these are people a lot of, a lot of folks in this movement look up to. And they're likely to emulate what they're doing. And indeed, I've seen people emulating what they're doing on a much smaller scale. So I think it'd be just really interesting to, to talk about these things. So, Paul, I, I did some, some research. I did some digging, which essentially means Googling vegan activist Patreon and just seeing what <laughs> comes up found dozens and dozens of examples of people that said so-and-so is doing vegan activism. So-and-so is, is getting active for the animals. Uh, one of them said so-and-so is, and this is the format of Patreon. Like if you go to ours, it says the beard vegans are making podcasts. Uh, and one of them says so-and-so is creating content to end the animal genocide. <laughs> so <laughs> people have these things. And, and Paul, so I sent you a link to some of the ones I feel like were the, the most exemplary of the type of, of asking for money of passing the hat that I was, that I have been sort of, that's been on my mind. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess I want to talk about trends that we notice in these things. And then, you know, like, what is it that people are sort of saying? What are they putting out there? What's the message that they have to say that they deserve money from people? And then kind of open up this conversation into to the wider questions that are a, a, around this topic. So just to kind of give people a picture of the type of money that we're talking about, you know, the, the, the highest number of patrons that I saw was one person had 831 patrons, and that was yielding them over $5,000 a month. And there's something you can do on Patreon where you can turn off the notification, because if you go to ours, you can see that the Beard Vegans are making X amount of dollars per month. $7 million. $7 million a month. 
a measly mm-hmm. fee. <laughs> yeah. And some people can turn that off. So all you can see is the number of patrons that they have. So you don't really know the amount of money. You can only guess. But, you know, people have 600 patrons, 400 patrons. And they also found a lot of people that are sort of kind of emulating what these bigger names are doing. And they have 18 patrons and they're making $131 a month or $168 a month. So not not like huge amounts. And sort of just looking at common themes, you know, a lot of the activists, the type of activism that they're doing, and I guess we should talk about whether the type of activism that they're doing matters in regards to this conversation, but a lot of them are doing what would be known as street activism. They're participating in a lot of animal save vigils. They're participating in things like Anonymous for the Voiceless and and their Cube of Truth and they're doing speeches and, and things of that nature. They're often filming themselves at these events. They're filming themselves having conversations with people that are passing by and and sort of putting out there this content that shows them having a conversation with someone, having a confrontation with someone. And they all have a story, and a, lo- a lot of them have something that's along the lines of, I just knew that this was my calling and I needed to right the wrongs of my past. And it's, it's unfair to the animals for me, for me to not be dedicating 100% of my time to doing activism for them. Me working a job and not putting forth, you know, all of my hours into animals is sort of an injustice. And so if you are someone that can't get out there and do this activism, you can just give me some money and I will sort of represent you. I will do the best that I can. That's kind of like the general messaging that that we see. It's really interesting, Paul, because not a single one really offers a reward. Hmm. So what we're talking about here are not like content creators that give you something in return. Like if you back your favorite YouTube person and that means they're going to make an extra YouTube video a month or you back your favorite artist and they're going to send you some artwork or some comics in your email every month, something like that. It's just... You're supporting me, and if you do it for a dollar a month, that's great. You help me with my low-level expenses. If you do it for $10, that's so amazing. And if you do it for $50 a month, oh, my God, you're the best person ever, and you're helping me to to make a, a vegan world. It's That's just sort of the – instead of a reward, it's just like at this level, you will really help me. And a few of them offer – no matter what level you do, they will offer like a once-a-month – live stream where they'll just talk about everything that they did in the the month prior. They'll talk about the activism that they've done. That seems to be a pretty standard reward. That seems to be a pretty standard way of engaging with the people that do choose to, to back them. And so just, I guess, some specific quotes. One of the low-level people that was asking for money when asked, you know, when they, you know, people have to sort of make their plea, like, why am I worthy of this money? And this person said, my primary specialty is getting on the megaphone and explaining speciesism to the public and encouraging them to go vegan and join the animal rights movement. And some people break down their expenses. Mostly it's just like, you know, I need to cover my bills so I can travel full time and do this thing. And some people broke it down really succinctly and said, my expenses are rent, food, gas, bills, including life insurance. And once I die, you know, my life insurance, 8% of that's going to go to animal charities. And then the gym, because, quote, I want to look my best to represent a healthy vegan lifestyle and phone bill. And uh, someone said, what do you get of being a patron on my page? You get the guarantee that funds will never hold me back as an animal rights activist in knowing that I can be more than a weekend warrior and commit up to seven days a week completely investing in saving animals. You know, you know, Andy, at, at, like when I first read that one, that was like rent, food, gas, bills, gym, phone bill. At first I was like, 
that's kind of like, I don't know how I feel, but like, that's kind of shady I, or not shady, but I was like, that's kind of, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be paying someone's gym bill, but then I was, I thought about it and I was like, well, these other people that are making $5,000 a month, that's what it's going towards too. They're just not saying that that's what it's going towards. Yeah. They're not as upfront about it. Yeah. So if anything, I was like, well, I appreciate that this person's being transparent. Yeah, so so here, here's where I kind of want to open this up because now that we sort of painted a picture of, of like the type of thing that we're specifically talking about, I guess the question is, first, let me just ask you, Paul, like, do we need full-time activists? Uh, putting aside the type of activism that they do, whether you agree with it, whether you don't, is there value in, in paying an individual to dedicate their time fully to animals? And are we separating this from someone who works for an animal organization, a farm sanctuary? Are we separating like are we separating that out? And are we just talking about crowdfunding? Let's let's I mean, I do want to talk specifically about crowdfunding. And I guess I have a question here that was, is this different than someone that goes to work for a vegan outreach or a mercy for animals or, or one of these big organizations and is getting paid a, a salary or an hourly rate. Is this really so different from that? Is there like a different set of accountability for these things? Like, do we need these activists? I was going to say, I do think that it's, it's very different because there is pretty much no accountability for this sort of crowdfunding. Like I, I hope that these people are doing the things that they say that they're doing. I hope that the money's going towards, even, even though a lot of them are very vague about what the money might be going towards. Like, I hope it's going towards something or it's allowing them to do something beneficial with, with someone that works for an, like an organization, there is definitely more accountability. Like, Hey, you are getting paid to do this thing. And if you're not going to do this thing, then you're just not going to get paid because it's your job and that's how jobs work. So I definitely think that it's different. I do think that if we're talking about just should there be full-time activists overall, I think yes. I think that there there does need to be people who dedicate all of their time to these things, especially when it comes to, you know, like the big planning of organization, uh, the big planning of events or, or planning how organizations are run and stuff like that. I think that those are full-time jobs, I guess, spoiler alert, my general feelings about these sorts of the crowdfunding ones, I guess my general feeling is that if people want to pay for these, if people want to give money to these people, I can't, I'm, I'm not going to say, Hey, I'm going to tell you what you, who you can or cannot give your money to. I'm not going to say that. So if you want to give your money to these, to some of these Patreons, then do it. But I think one of my main critiques is that the only from, from the list of Patreons that you or from the ones that you talked about, Andy, and from the ones that I looked at, the only way that any of these individuals are going to be able to reach their main goal which is the common thread was i want to do this full i want to do my activism full time the only way they're going to reach that is if they are already a either semi or very famous or well-known or popular vegan and the only way not the only way but 
pretty much in the in the Instagram age, the way that they are going to be able to get that much social capital is if they're specifically doing activism that's very out there, that's very either inflammatory or it's or there's it's confrontational or it's loud that's how that's how these specific especially the ones that I'm the names I'm looking at right now that's how these individuals for the most part get their you know fame and they're only going to be able to make the kind of money that they want to make is if they have that fame so i guess my main critique is it it kind of funnels out the types of advocacy only into the ones that are very loud and that that people are like gung-ho about supporting and while i'm looking at this list of names and i don't i don't disagree with all of them i maybe have i have varying opinions on them so i don't think it's necessarily all bad i i do worry that it uh it it will filter out different types of advocacy that I also believe can be very effective. That's just the less sexy advocacy. Well, uh, okay. So is that a bad thing? If, if we go from the premise that the type of activism that these people are doing has some value, it's like, okay, this, this way of getting money to fund activism might not work for every type of activism. But if, if we think that what these people are doing has value, is it such a bad thing that they can get money to do that full time? I no, I I don't think like I don't think that it's that's a bad thing. Then I think that if if people are willing to to donate one dollar or ten dollars or a hundred dollars, again, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be like no, people shouldn't be donating their money. Like this isn't like obviously these people are promoting their Patreon because they want people to give them this money but at the end of the day it's 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 not their choice these individuals it's not their choice whether or not people decide to give them the money like they can put themselves out there and get this money and hopefully use it for for the power of good but i i, I don't think it's like i don't think just th- them making this patreon is a bad thing I want to circle back to your point about if someone works for a nonprofit, then there's more accountability. We know that they're doing a job because if they're not, then they're going to get fired. And with, with these people, we, we don't know what they're doing now, at least in your words, uh, you know, a lot of these people are putting out YouTube videos. They're sort of documenting everything that they're doing. They are very active on, on social media. So I guess it's not like really like, true accountability but i guess if someone's like oh this person hasn't posted a video in three weeks i guess i'm gonna withdraw my my funding you know they they could certainly do that but also uh, you know having been in and out of the the vegan nonprofit world i've certainly seen people that are employed that don't really do all that much or sort of skate by doing the bare minimum and they're still getting paid and they're still getting paid from money that's been collected from people that think I can't do activism myself or have limited means to. So let me pay someone else to do it full time. So I don't know that the nonprofit world is necessarily any better in that regard. I, I, I totally understand. And I think that that was not a point that I brought up or that was not a point that I thought that does make me reconsider that a little bit, but I don't know. I, I still think that, I would say there are systems in place to provide for accountability, even if people fall through those. And maybe, maybe 
a lot of people fall through those, but I, I think there's something to say that there is some system and there is some system of accountability in place versus no system of accountability. Yeah. And, and I, I agree with you, Paul, that the fact that a lot of the, the, the listing of goals and, and aims on these Patreons are very vague. It's just, I want to do activism full time. I need money to make it to a save vigil. I need money to, to, to go out and do this. Some people say I need money to be able to go out and eat with people after the, the action takes place. Obviously, I think everyone should be able to feed themselves and eat. So, you know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, they shouldn't be able to feed themselves. But the fact that it's sort of this like really vague thing, like here, give me money and I will do activism. To me, that that does rub me the wrong way because it it's not a specific thing. So, like, for instance, with our Patreon, if we reach this goal, that means we're going to put out one transcribed episode a month. If we reach this goal, we're going to put out two. You know, like, there's specific things, and people that sign up know we're going to get at least one bonus episode a month. If they hit this goal, they're going to add a second bonus episode in. If I pay this much, then I'm going to get a you know, a sticker mailed to me, whatever it is, there's nothing like that there. So it's just sort of people that have built up this uh, cult of personality per se, and people like what they do, they like their videos that they put out, and then they're giving them money. Maybe some people do it in place of doing activism. Maybe some people are doing a lot of activism. They just really look up to these people. And so I don't know, something about that just feels different. But yes, I don't think that there's anything wrong with people asking for money people don't have to give it people don't you know no one has to do it this is like unrelated but there's recently this like smaller ish like indie band and they did a kickstarter for a hundred thousand dollars and a lot of people are making fun of them because it's such a huge ask it's like maybe it is but if they have fans that are willing to pay that much and and essentially this acts as like a glorified pre-order they'll get the money or they won't and what is what is my position to shit on that? Like, hey, if they can't reach the goal, they can't reach the goal. But if people like them enough to give them the money, why not? Yeah. Yeah. But I guess, you know, maybe there's this feeling that certain people might be getting taken advantage of. Because even if they're not being forced to give this money, there's sort of this vague, it's for the animals. You know, like, give me money and I will save animals. And it's it's different than give me money and I will make X amount of videos per month. And I think along the being taken advantage of line, I also think that especially for some of the very popular people that are on this list that I'm looking at, like they are making money from, you know, YouTube is probably paying them a bit. Like I'm sure that the things that they are doing in themselves may provide other avenues of revenue. Not, not all of them, of course, but like for a lot of these people that I look at, some of them like have been very, very, very popular and outspoken about their activism and, and doing all these actions and doing talks and all this stuff. They've been doing it for a while before the Patreon. And of course I don't like, I'm not going to, I guess I shouldn't like speculate about how, what they were doing to make money before then. And, and if they, if they were like, you know, working 40 hours a week in some different job and then doing this in, in absolutely all of their free time. And that was like really burning them out. Cause I'm sure that that was, 
that was the case for some of them. But I, I would imagine that some of the more popular ones are probably making money different ways than just the Patreon. For instance, if they have popular YouTubes or if they have some some sort of sponsorships or if they're doing talks that they're getting paid for or if they're hosting lunches that people have to pay $3,000 for. So it's like there's all these different ways that they could be making money also off of the activism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, selling T-shirts or something like that. <laughs> selling T-shirts, but I meant even even more so like off of the direct content that they are doing anyways. So like, for instance, if someone has gotten really popular as an outspoken vegan activist on YouTube and their, their, their videos have gotten a lot of hits and people seeing those videos have been like, oh, I should support this person. I'm going to donate to their Patreon because their Patreon says like, oh, I want to make a living doing, doing this, but I need your help to do that. Like maybe if they're not as transparent about how much money they're already making on YouTube, this is speculation. Maybe they're maybe these vegan YouTube people aren't making that much money, but I imagine they're making some some of them are making a decent amount. They're yeah, they're probably making some. I know that there was a shake up in the you know, the YouTube world kind of relatively recently where a lot of channels got demonetized and they've been making it harder and harder for people to actually make money off their channels. So I don't know. I, I guess that, that gets to another point though is you know, people saying like, well, you know, you should you should work a job like the rest of us. I, I work a nine to five and I still get out there and I do activism. And I'm I'm wondering if it's kind of like classist to expect people to do this work for free. Uh, I You know, I guess to my original question, which was, do we need full time activists? Is there value in having people that are paid to focus 24 seven or at least nine to five on animals? I think the answer is yes. I, I think that there's a lot of issues with the the nonprofit industrial complex. And I think a lot of, you know, motivations can get muddied in those waters, but I think in theory, having people that are just always working on one particular issue, make sure that that thing can get the attention that it, that it needs and that it deserves. And if we view this as important work to be done for the, for the betterment of, you know, the planet for the animals, then shouldn't someone be paid appropriately for it? You know, like we, we see this in, in the nonprofit world where people are expected to do work for low or no pay because it's for the animals. So are we just sort of turning around and then if we say, if we say these activists shouldn't have Patreons, are we sort of demanding the same thing? Is it kind of classist of us to say you should only do this work if you can afford to fund it yourself via some other means? So, so, Something I was just thinking of, Andy, is would it maybe be better than if, like, I see specific types of this street advocacy that's being done by, like, these people that are then asking for Patreons to support them to be able to continue to do these things. Would it be better if there was some nonprofit that kind of organized that and these these street activists were employed by them and and were given money via these donations that the organization was getting like would that prompt more accountability and w would that be i don't know i'm saying it out loud and it just like doesn't sound like it would work out but i'm trying to, I, I guess i'm wondering if there is a way to make it so it's not just 
like I'm giving money to this person. It's I'm giving money to this organization that's then going to support these people to do this thing. I mean, it just sounds like you're describing a nonprofit, Paul. <laughs> well, I guess like should. So then I guess I guess my question is, should these people instead of just asking money on Patreon, should they be joining like a nonprofit to in order to do these things? Well, I guess I, I think that that comes down to sort of one of the distinctions between between the the people that work for a nonprofit and the people that are sort of doing this. I am one person out here doing activism and follow me and like me and give me money. I guess this is a point that I wanted to raise was, you know, are the activists that do this, are they see, just sort of seeking out their vegan fame? Is it like a very performative type of activism? Before I even turn it over to you, I, I should say I do not doubt at all that every single person that is doing this is deeply invested in animal liberation or deeply cares about animals or their version of veganism. Like, I don't think anyone is getting into this this Patreon vegan game to make money, like, so far. At least not that I've seen, you know, necessarily. Um, but do you think that it's, it's, like, more appealing to certain people to to do their own thing because that gives them the limelight, that gives them this chance to really show the world how vegan they are? Well, I definitely think like what I was, what I said like a while ago towards the beginning, I definitely think that the only way that one of these individuals will be successful on a Patreon is if they have some degree of vegan fame. And I believe that the only way that, not the only way, but I believe that there's definitely a correlation between like being famous on the vegan internet and the type of advocacy that's very loud and outspoken. So I do think that there's some sort of correlation between that. And, and I think that if you don't do that form of advocacy, then I'm sure there are still people that have tried to create some sort of crowdfunding thing to help them out, but I don't think they're going to get as many donations. They're not going to get as many patrons. I don't remember what your original question was, Andy. I just kind of went on a ramble. <laughs> what was your original question? The question was, are they just doing it for vegan fame? I don't think that they're doing it specifically for fame, but I do think it's kind of a, a cycle of getting more fame will let them get more donations and patrons, which will let them keep doing this activism, which they know this specific type. Like they then now that if they know that it's a possibility that they will be able to subsist on just these donations i think it would encourage them to keep doing these louder actions that will then get them more fame which will then get them more money which will then allow them to keep doing this so i do think there's maybe some sort of cycle to that yeah I, I, that kind of has me thinking about sort of the the vegan youtube world which is one that i only have a little bit of interaction with you know, there's a few people that I love to follow, but then there's seems to be this sort of version of vegan YouTube where it's just people attacking each other. It's so-and-so, you know, so-and-so is a sellout or, you know, like people essentially, they find like the biggest vegan YouTuber that they can find and they make some video that's a takedown of them. And then people <laughs> go back and forth and it, it's it's just like a whole type of vegan YouTube thing. And 
And a lot of people, and maybe they have legitimate gripes with with some of these YouTubers, but honestly, I think that people know that those are the videos that get the most views. Is is sort of this vegan beef that goes on between people, and so so it's. I think people see I get rewarded when I start this type of shit, and when I make a video that's sort of calmly explaining the exploitation of animals, I don't get nearly as much attention. I don't get the clicks. I don't get the revenue coming in. So, so yeah, I do think that there could potentially be the danger of, you know, the people that are willing to fund a Patreon are doing it for the people that are sort of very loud about their veganism or doing a specific type of veganism. And it creates an obstacle for someone to be introspective about the activism that they are doing, because maybe they decide that doing something that isn't so confrontational or isn't quite so loud or in the public eye would actually be a more effective form of activism, but they know that their donations will suffer because of it. I think that could certainly be a a downside to the whole thing. That's true. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't really think about that, but I do agree with you that if you have like you're, you're, in some ways, if you're doing this thing where you're like, oh, I have 400, or I have 600, or I have 800 patrons following me, or and even more people than that, I have tens of thousands of, or maybe 100,000 people following me on social media. To some extent, like you're creating a brand for yourself and you have to keep up that brand if you want to keep those followers, if you want to keep those patrons. So I think you're absolutely right that, that for some people it would be, discourage them from from wanting to change even if they're they're if criticisms are are brought up against them yeah yeah definitely uh, so where do we fall in this andy uh what do you mean like what is our personal views on it no where do where does the bearded vegans patreon patreon fall into all this I mean, I, I again, I think that sort of the difference between our type of Patreon, which which I would classify as a content creator whose you know donations coming in are contingent upon us continuing to create specific content, and those that that come and contribute also get additional bonuses, whether that's a, a physical reward or an extra video that they get to watch or an extra episode that they watch. By the way, there's two and a half extra episodes in our Patreon right now. You know, <laughs> I find that is different than someone that says, give me money and I will do activism. And I, I think that, I don't know, some people might say there isn't a difference. Like the people that support either one like what we're doing and and want to help us buy equipment. They want to help us buy a sandwich for ourselves. They, You know, whatever it is, they like us. They find some value in what they do, what we do, you know, us or when these activists and they say, you know what, I could spare five bucks a month to this person because I like what they do. And there isn't a, a real like ethical or tangible or meaningful difference between what we're doing and what they're doing. We just happen to have more content to necessarily show for it or like specific content to show for it and have specific goals outlined. Yeah. You using you using our Patreon money to buy sandwiches, Andy? Behind my back, you you're, the, you're the one that has the access to the money, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Are you buying sandwiches right. behind my back? <laughs> just tofu, just a lot of. The next time you visit me, I'm just gonna have a, a whole other refrigerator that's just <laughs> stocked with like golden tofu. Uh, I can't wait. <laughs> you open a closet and just like tofu falls out. <laughs> I think. I, I think overall, I just feel like if people want to to 
donate their money to this if they if they think that it's that this is a good cause that they're they're going towards i'm not going to stop people from doing that and and i don't know i i i do get i even though i think it's a weird thing to say to promote yourself i do get that some people might be like i can't i'm never i would never be this outspoken or i would never do this thing so i appreciate that someone else is doing this thing and i want to help them to keep doing this thing like i i can definitely empathize with that yeah yeah i i guess i agree with you paul like essentially i'm like you know there's a lot of these people's patrons i look at and i like i would never give them five bucks a month but if you see value in what they're doing i don't necessarily think it's the worst thing in the world now again we can talk about whether we agree or disagree with the specific activism they're doing um but I guess, and I sort of asked this question before, but where maybe there are some ethical concerns is, do you feel like the these people are taking advantage of people that want to help animals in order to get this money? You know, like someone someone could sit there and say, you know what, I've assessed my options and I think my best option is to give 10 bucks to this person that's out there doing this specific type of activism. And and we're like, okay, you're within your rights to do that. But but then is it like, okay, someone is exploiting the fact that people care about animals in order to get money for themselves to pay their, their gym membership, for instance? It's it is I think it's hard to tell I don't even want to use the word like how genuine someone is. I don't want to use the word genuine because I think that a lot of these people are genuine. Genuinely but... want your money. Yeah, <laughs> I think it is. It is hard to tell sometimes, like how authentic that some of their words might be that are on their Patreon page, and being like, "Oh, this is like, I, like I wouldn't be able to do this without you," and blah 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 blah. I, I don't know. I think it's hard to speculate whether or not someone is is trying to exploit people for their money. So, I guess I'm. I don't have anything else to say than that, but I, I think it's I I can't personally speculate on whether or not I think these people are like just using these things to to get money. Yeah, I, I, it's really a case by case basis. I think, you know, I think that there are probably a lot of people that think they're just they see a place they see an issue they genuinely care about. But they also know that it could be an outlet for them to get a lot of hero worship. It also means that they could start to get money for the work that they do. And that might be appealing to a specific type of person. Um, you know, we haven't mentioned this up until this point, but looking at sort of a demographic breakdown of the vast majority of the people, the the people that make a Patreon that says, give me money and I will do activism are white men. Yeah. You know, so is it something that appeals to a specific type of person, a specific type of, let's say, ego within this movement that that knows that they can get a platform that's going to get them a lot of praise? Yeah, this is true. And and so in regards to us saying, well, someone just decides they want to give money to someone that's their that's their prerogative. Do you think there's a difference between someone that's thinking I like the work that so-and-so does, so I'm just going to give them money versus someone that's thinking, if I give this person 10 bucks, I will save animals. Do you think there's a difference between those two mindsets at all? Or is that just a, a semantic difference? 
I, I I think I do think that there's a difference, and I guess I do think that it's a little. I don't know if I want to say manipulative, but it's a little manipulative to say, I'm going to say it anyways. It's a little manipulative to maybe say something. If, if your Patreon says by donating money to me, you are saving animals. Like, I think that's, that's a little manipulative and that can kind of sway people to be like, Oh, this, my money is going towards animals. But it's not. It's going towards these people who are then hopefully doing things that that will hopefully have an effect. But it's not like a one to one kind of deal. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that you're right. Manipulative is definitely the word for it. Now, this is not the case with every single one that we looked at. But, I, you know, I think that people people use this language, nonprofits included as well, you know animals are dying right now. Animals are in a state of emergency and that sort of is a, you know, phrasing that's used to urge people to make donations right now. And I mean, you see this with literally every single nonprofit at the end of the year, people trying to get those end of year donations that, you know, we have this specific goal and we have to hit it now and we're going to double your donation and all, you know, people, people use that to, to heighten the sense of urgency. And I don't know how, but somehow, my parents' address got registered under some registry. They they just send out tons of mailers from like HSUS and like puppy mill groups, and they just send out these envelopes that have horrible pictures of like, you know, deformed, like mangled, unhealthy dogs and cows, like on the front, and it's all just clearly. It's fundraising tactics, and it's clearly meant to manipulate people's emotions in order to give their money to these organizations. So, so don't think that we're letting nonprofits off the hook here. But why does it feel more icky when it's a specific person versus a nonprofit? I don't know that it feels more icky when we're talking about these specific mailings that come in. And I feel so bad for my poor parents that, that get these, these letters all the time. They have to look at that crap. Uh, it does feel like you when I think about how much money is being spent by these organizations to do this fundraising, I feel icky when I see major organizations having celebrity galas and pumping tons of money in there, you know, to, to raise their profile within a certain community. Um, that does make me feel icky. I don't know if that makes me feel more or less icky than a specific person. Like, honestly, I feel like I would rather give money for someone to eat and travel the country talking about veganism than I would give for someone so they can pay a celebrity to make an appearance at their function. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, Paul, I guess, you know, we're we're getting to the end of this conversation. And in terms of closing thoughts, I think for me, it's hard for me to make a blanket statement that these types of Patreons are bad. But I think that people should really be very discerning in terms of who they give money to. Like, do you like this person's content because they make stuff that makes you feel good? Do you see videos of them confronting those evil carnists and you think that that's amazing activism and you want to help them continue? Do you see someone that has a lot of ego? Do you see someone that supports fat shaming or some other, you know, sort of oppression within our movement? Like really pay attention to those things. If you think that this is someone that you want to give money to, but like overall, I can't, as much as there's certain activists, the ones that we're talking about that I'm like, I don't know if I totally jive with them. I see value in people being out there full time and, and, and getting the money that's necessary for them to do that. And I know that that'll probably ruffle some feathers, but I, I can't say that it's like blanketedly a bad thing. 
I think have the same critical lens that you would have when you're researching whether to donate to any organization, any nonprofit organization, you know, because I think because I think it it applies to that as well, where there's a lot of organizations, nonprofit or otherwise that that say they're doing one thing and then do some really shady stuff and aren't very transparent about it. So have that same uh, like critical analysis with both of with all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So whew, we would love to hear your thoughts on this. Do you support someone on Patreon that you think is amazing amazing and worthy of it? Do you think hell no, why would we why would we donate to these guys when there's all these amazing animal sanctuaries or amazing organizations that could use our money instead? Where do you fall on this? Please let us know your thoughts. Send us an email, thebeardvegans at gmail.com and uh, don't forget write those uh, emails in for the mailbag and uh, we didn't mention at the top of the show but you know we're going to draw three new winners to win a, a button and sticker for anyone that does write us a review on iTunes so get those in before it's too late is now when I announce that I started a Patreon to become a full-time tofu eater <laughs> Paul now you produce some gold content so I think it's warranted <laughs> Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. Do you just like prizes? You just send people empty tofu containers (laughs) that are signed. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So what do you got coming up, Andy? April 29th, I'll be at the VegFest Michigan in Novi, Michigan. May 5th, I'll be at the Cleveland VegFest in Cleveland, Ohio. June 10th, Asheville VegFest, Asheville, North Carolina. June 16th, Tri-State VegFest, Edison, New Jersey. And June 30th, the Vegandale Food and Drink Fest in Chicago, Illinois. Very nice. Yeah, maybe I can convince Paul to come help me at some of those. We haven't talked about it yet, but... (laughs) (laughs) Start a Patreon. Send me over there. (laughs) Yeah, gas money for Paul to come help me. I would love to. I've never been to Chicago before, so maybe I can go there. Ooh, that would be cool. Uh, you know, be. Paul, we might have a trip to Chicago later in the year. Oh, that's right. <laughs> uh, Paul, you know, looking through all these Patreons, the weirdest one to me was one where someone was just trying to raise money to travel the country and say the following seven words. We are the Bearded Vegans, signing off. For a heart of gold It's this expression I never give It keeps me searching for heart of gold And I'm getting old It keeps me searching for heart of Well, I did the old Knoxville Veg Fest, and nope, that's not right at all. So this one is from Beth Ann, who emailed in. Just finished the anti. I am not racist. I don't need to practice it because it's already just. I don't need to practice it because it's just already me. I feel like we should give some give some. Yeah. Background.
Do you remember the background? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, if you give me some money, I will be able to go out there and do Anvil. Anvil. A farm sanctuary. F- sanctuary. A farm sanctuary. <laughs> but I do think that the fame. Oh, there's a police car. <laughs> just, just. Okay. They're asking right. if you, it's it's um. Morse code for are you recording a podcast in there? <laughs> it's fundraising tactics and it's clearly Minet Minet Minamina. Minamina. To prioritize environmental sustainability and climate change solutions by modelizing modelizing. Okay. And climate change solutions by modelizing <laughs> Which will remove dairy as a food group and empathize. Which will remove dairy as a food group and empathize. Emphasize the practices necessitated. The practices necessitated. Don't laugh, Paul. And I think you know we certainly empathize. 